Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 284 of Forgotten Classics, where we will continue with the White Mall's exciting adventures in the seamy underbelly of New York City in the early 1920s. First, though, let's look at a podcast highlight. A podcast that's set in another town, a small town, well, a completely fictional town. This podcast is called King Falls AM. And the podcast, it seems to be an offshoot of, in a way, is Welcome to Night Vale. Not precisely, and not really connected. But of course, having listened to Welcome to Night Vale, which I've mentioned several times, which is as if H.P. Lovecraft uh, was writing about a real town out in the desert somewhere. King Falls is a lonely little mountain town, and we listen to oh, 10 to 15 minutes each episode of its late night AM talk radio show. What makes this unique is it's not set in an alternate universe like Night Vale is. It's not completely outrageous. And so it's a little easier to relate to because it's told from the point of view of Sammy, who is the new late night radio show host. He's working with Ben, his producer, who is like his co-host on the show. Ben is from King Falls. Ben thinks King Falls is the greatest place on earth. But even Ben has a moment of pause when they're listening to somebody who's called in and is telling them about the lights that are hovering above the highway and whose voice suddenly gets cut off mid-transmission. This isn't normal. <laughs> so an alien abduction is the first thing we see. And every single episode brings up something unusual, paranormal, and quite often it is accepted by the people who live there as something that's normal for that town. So the way they play with it is fun. And also the mayor, who wants to keep any talk of this off air, is a character who brings Sammy and Ben together. So what you have is a nice working relationship between them some adversarial stuff going on between Sammy and Ben when they're not agreeing about what the town is like. And it's just a lot of fun. I highly recommend it. There have only been about mm, six episodes, so it's easy to catch up. King Falls AM. Give it a try. All right, back to our own real life New York City, but fictional New York City, of course, because we're hearing about the White Mall and her adventures. If you recall, Rhoda Gray, the White Mall, in the guise of Gypsy Nan, has decoded a secret criminal gang message that tells about a planned heist on somebody named Nicky Viner who seems down at the heels, out of work, a real bum. And what they found out is that he's actually a miser and he's got $50,000. Now that's a ton of dough back in 1923 or whenever this was written, early 1920s. So they have found out where he's got it hidden. They're going to go get it. Can Rhoda Gray save him? As she says in the last episode, she wished she'd never decoded the message because once she decoded it, if she turned her back on him and he died or was hurt or anything happened to him, it's on her for not even trying to help him. Oh, a conscience can be a terrible thing, but it can also, you know, lead to a lot of fun adventure for us. <laughs> so let's see what's going to happen. When we last said goodbye, she was on her way. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The White Mall by Frank L. Packard Chapter 9 Room Number 11 Another five minutes, and in her own personality now, a slim, 
trim figure, neatly gloved, the heavy veil affording ample protection to her features, Rhoda Gray emerged from the shed and the lane, and started rapidly toward Lower Sixth Avenue. As she walked, her mind, released for the moment from that consideration of her immediate venture, began again, as it had so many times in the last three days, its striving and its searching after some loophole of escape from her own desperate situation. But only, as it ever did, confusion came, a chaos of things, contributory things and circumstances, and the personalities of those with whom this impossible existence had thrown her into contact. Little by little she was becoming acquainted with the personnel of the gang, in an impersonal way, mostly. Apart from Dangler, there was Schlucker, who must of necessity be one of them, and Skeeny, the man who had been with Dangler in Schlucker's room, and the Cricket, whom she had never seen, and besides these, there were those who were mentioned in the cipher message to-night, and detailed to the performance of the various acts and scenes that were to lead up to the final climax, which, she supposed, was the object and the reason for the cipher message, in order that even those not actually employed be thoroughly conversant with the entire plan, and ready to act intelligently if called upon. For there were others, of course, as witness herself, or rather Gypsy Nan, whose personality she had so unwillingly usurped. It was vital, necessary, that she should know them all, and more than in an impersonal way, if she counted upon ever freeing herself of the guilt attributed to her. For she could see no other way but one, that of exposing and proving the guilt of this vile clique who now surrounded her, and who actually instigated and planned the crime of which she was accused. It was not an easy task. And then there were those outside this unholy circle, who kept forcing their existence upon her consciousness, because they, too, played an intimate part in the sordid drama which revolved around her, and whose end she could not foresee. There was, for instance, the adventurer. She drew in her breath quickly. She felt the color creep slowly upward, and tinge her throat and cheeks, and then the little chin, strong and firm, was lifted in a sort of self-defiant challenge. True, the man had been a great deal in her thoughts, but that was only because her curiosity was piqued, and because, on two occasions now, she had had very real cause for gratitude to him. If it had not been for the adventurer, she would even now be behind prison bars. Why shouldn't she think of him? She was not an ingrate. Why shouldn't she be interested? There was something piquantly mysterious about the man, who called himself an adventurer, she would even have given a good deal to know who he really was, and how he, too, came to be so conversant with Dangler's plans, as fast as they were matured, and why, on those two particular occasions, he had not only gone out of his way to be of service to her, but had done so at very grave risk to himself. Of course she was interested in him, in that way. How could she help it? But, in any other way— the little chin was still tilted defiantly upward. Even the suggestion was absurd. The man might be chivalrous, courageous, yes, outwardly, even a gentleman in both manner and appearance. He might be all of those things, and indeed was, but he was a thief, a professional thief and crook. It seemed very strange, of course, but she was judging him, not alone from the circumstances under which they had met and been together, but from what he had given her to understand about himself. The defiance went suddenly from her face, and for a moment her lips quivered a little helplessly. It was all so very strange, and so forbidding, and—and perhaps she hadn't the stout heart that a man would have, but she did not understand, and she could not see her way through the darkness that was like a pall wrapped about her and it was hard just to grope out amidst surroundings that revolted her and made her soul sick. It was hard to do this, and still she kept her courage and her faith. She shook her head presently as she went along, shook it reprovingly at herself, and the little shoulders squared resolutely back. There must be, and there would be, a way out of it all, and meanwhile her position, bad as it was, was not without at least a certain compensation. There had been the sparrow the other night, whom she had been able to save, 
and tonight there was Nicky Viner. She could not be blind to that. Who knew? It might be for just such very purposes that her life had been turned into these new channels. She looked around her sharply now. She had reached the lower section of Sixth Avenue. Perlmer's office, according to the address given, was still a little further on. She walked briskly. It was very different tonight, thanks to her veil. It had been horrible the other night when she had to venture out as the white mall and had been forced to keep to the dark alleys and lanes and the unfrequented streets. And now, through a jeweler's window, she noted the time and knew a further sense of relief. It was even earlier than she had imagined. It was not quite ten o'clock. She would, at least, be close on the heels of Perlmer's departure from his office, if not actually ahead of time, and therefore she would be first on the scene, and— Yes, there was the place. Here was Perlmer's name, amongst those on the nameplate at the street entrance of the small three-story building. She entered the hallway and found it deserted. It was a rather dirty and unkempt place, and very poorly lighted. A single incandescent alone burned in the hall. Perlmer's room, so the nameplate indicated, was number 11, and on the next floor. She mounted the stairs, and paused on the landing to look around her again. Here, too, the hallway was lighted by but a single lamp, and here, too, an air of desertion was in evidence. The office tenants, it was fairly obvious, were not habitual night-workers, for not a ray of light came from any of the glass-paneled doors that flanked both sides of the passage. She nodded her head sharply in satisfaction. It was equally obvious that Perlmer had already gone. It would take her but a moment, then, unless the skeleton keys gave her trouble. She had never used a key of that sort, but— she moved quietly down the hallway, and, looking quickly about her to assure herself again that she was not observed, stopped before the door of room number eleven. A moment she hung there, listening. Then she slipped the skeleton keys from her pocket, and, in the act of inserting one of them tentatively into the keyhole, she tried the door, and, with a little gasp of surprise, returned the keys hurriedly to her pocket. The door was unlocked. It had even been open an inch already under her hand. Again she looked around her, a little startled now, and instinctively her hand in her pocket exchanged the keys for her revolver. But she saw nothing, heard nothing, and it was certainly dark inside there, and therefore only logical to conclude that the room was unoccupied. Reassured, she pushed the door cautiously and noiselessly open, and stepped inside, and closed the door behind her. She stood still for an instant, and then the round, white ray of her flashlight went dancing inquisitively around the office. It was a medium-sized room, far from ornate in its appointments. Bared floor, the furniture of the cheapest, Perlmer's clientele did not insist on oriental rugs and mahogany. Her appraisal of the room, however, was a bit cursory. She was interested only in the flat-top desk in front of her. She stepped quickly around it and stopped, and a low cry of dismay came from her as she stared at the floor. The lower drawer had been completely removed, and now lay upturned beside the swivel chair, its contents strewn around in all directions. And for a moment she stared at the scene, nonplussed, discomfited. She had been so sure that she would be first, and she had not been first. There was no need to search amongst those papers on the floor. They told their own story. The ones she wanted were already gone. In a numbed way, mechanically, she retreated to the door, and with the flashlight playing upon it, she noticed for the first time that the lock had been roughly forced. It was but corroborative of the despoiled drawer, and at the same time the obvious reason why the door had not been relocked when whoever had come here and gone out again. Whoever had come here, she could have laughed out hysterically. Was there any doubt as to who it was? One of Dangler's emissaries, the cricket perhaps, or perhaps even Dangler himself. They had seen to it that lack of prompt action, at least, would not be the cause of marring their plan. A little dazed, overwrought, confused at the ground being cut from under her, where she had been so confident of sure footing, she made her way out of the building, and to the street and for a block walked almost aimlessly along. 
and then suddenly she turned hurriedly into a cross street and headed over toward the east side. The experience had not been a pleasant one, and it had upset most thoroughly all her calculations, but it was very far, after all, from being disastrous. It meant simply that she must find Nicky Viner himself and warn the man, and there was ample time in which to do that. The code message specifically stated midnight as the hour at which they proposed to favor old Viner with their unhallowed attentions, and as it was but a little after ten now, she had nearly a full two hours in which to accomplish what should not have taken more than a few minutes. Rhoda Gray's lips tightened a little as she hurried along. Old Nicky Viner still lived in the same disreputable tenement in which he had lived on that night of that murder two years ago and she could not ward off the thought that it had been, yes, and was, an ideal place for a murder, from the murderer's standpoint. The neighborhood was one of the toughest in New York, and the tenement itself was frankly nothing more than a den of crooks. True, she had visited there more than once, had visited Nicky Viner there, but she had gone there then as the White Mall, to whom even the most abandoned would have touched his cap. Tonight it was very different. She went there as a woman, and yet, after all, she amended her own thoughts, smiling a little seriously. Surely she could disclose herself as the white mall there again to-night, if the actual necessity arose, for surely crooks, poke-getters, shillabers, and lags though they were, and though the place teemed with the dregs of the underworld, no one of them, even for the reward that might be offered, would inform against her to the police. And yet, Again the mental pendulum swung the other way. She was not so confident of that as she would like to be. In a general way there could be no question but that she could count on the loyalty of those who lived there. But there were always those upon whom one could never count, those who were dead to all sense of loyalty, and alive only to selfish gain and interest, a human trait that, all too unfortunately, was not confined to those alone who lived in that shadowland outside the law. Her face, beneath the thick veil, relaxed a little. Well, she certainly did not intend to make a test case of it, and disclose herself there as the white mall, if she could help it. She would enter the tenement unnoticed if she could, and make her way to Nicky Viner's two miserable rooms on the second floor as secretively as she could. And knowing the place as she did, she was quite satisfied that, if she were careful enough, and cautious enough, she could enter and leave without being seen by anyone except, of course, Nicky Viner. She walked on quickly. Five minutes, ten minutes passed, and now in the narrow street, lighted mostly by the dull, yellow glow that seeped up from the sidewalk through basement entrances, queer and forbidding portals to sinister interiors, or filtered through the dirty windows of uninviting little shops that ran the gamut from Chinese laundries to oyster dens, she halted, drawn back in the shadows of a doorway, and studied the tenement building that was just ahead of her. That was where old Nicky Viner lived. A smile of grim whimsicality touched her lips. Not a light showed in the place from top to bottom. From its exterior it might have been uninhabited, even long deserted. But to one who knew it, it was quite the normal condition, quite what one would expect. Those who lived there confined their activities mostly to the night, and their exodus to their labors began when the labors of the world at large ended, with the fall of darkness. For a little while she watched the place, and kept glancing up and down the street, and then, seizing her opportunity, when for half a block or more the street was free of pedestrians, she stole forward and reached the tenement door. It was half open, and she slipped quickly inside into the hall. She stood here for a moment, motionless, listening, striving to accommodate her eyes to the darkness, and instinctively her hand went to her pocket for a reassuring touch of her revolver. It was black back there in the hallway of Gypsy Nan's lodging. She had not thought that any greater degree of blackness could exist, but it was blacker here. Only the sense of touch promised to be of any avail. If one could have moved as noiselessly as a shadow moves, one could have passed another within arm's length unseen. And so she listened, listened intently, and there was very little sound. 
once she detected a footstep from the interior of some room as it moved across the bare floor, once she heard a door creak somewhere upstairs, and once, from some indeterminate direction, she thought she heard voices whispering together for a moment. She moved suddenly then, abruptly, almost impulsively, but careful not to make the slightest noise. She dared not remain another instant inactive. It was what she had expected, what she had counted upon as an ally, this darkness, but she was not one who laughed, even in daylight, at its psychology. It was beginning to attack her now, her imagination, to magnify even the actual dangers that she knew to be around her and she must fight it off before it got a hold upon her, and before panic voices out of the blackness began to shriek and clamor in her ears, as she knew they would do with pitiful little provocation, urging her to turn and flee incontinently. The staircase, she remembered, was at her right, and feeling out before her with her hands, she reached the stairs, and began to mount them. She went slowly, very slowly. They were bare, the stairs, and unless one were extremely careful they could creak out through the silence with a noise that could be heard from top to bottom of the tenement but she was not making any noise she dared not make any noise halfway up she halted and pressed her body close against the wall was that somebody coming she held her breath in expectation there wasn't a sound now but she could have sworn that she heard a footstep on the hallway above or on the upper stairs she bit her lips in vexation. Panic noises? That's what they were. That and the thumping of her heart. Why was it that alarms and exaggerated fancies came and tried to unnerve her? What, after all, was there really to be afraid of? She had almost a clear two hours before she need even anticipate any actual danger here, and if Nicky Viner were in, she would be away from the tenement again in another fifteen minutes at the latest. Rhoda Gray went on again, and gaining the landing, halted once more. And here she smiled at herself with the tolerant chiding she would have accorded a child that was frightened without warrant. She could account for those whisperings and that footstep now. The door to the left, the one next to Nicky Viner's squalid two-room apartment, was evidently partially open, and occasionally someone moved within and the voices came from there, too, and low-toned to begin with, were naturally muffled into whispers by the time they reached her. She had only, then, to step the five or six feet across the narrow hall in order to reach Nicky Viner's door, and unless, by some unfortunate chance, whoever was in that room happened to come out into the hall at the same moment, she would—yes, it was all right. She was trying Nicky Viner's door now. It was unlocked, and as she opened it for the space of a crack, there showed a tiny chink of light, so faint and meagre that it seemed to shrink timorously back again, as though to put rout to the massed blackness. But it was enough to evidence the fact that Nicky Viner was at home. It was all simple enough now. Old Viner would undoubtedly make some exclamation at her sudden and stealthy entrance, but once she was inside, without those in the next room either having heard or seen her, it would not matter. Another inch she pushed the door open, another, and then another, and then quickly, silently, she tiptoed over the threshold and closed the door softly behind her. The light came from the inner room and shone through the connecting door, which was open, and there was a movement from within, and a low, grumbling voice, petulant, whining, as though an old man were mumbling complainingly to himself. She smiled coldly. It was very much like Nicky Viner. It was a habit of his to talk to himself, she remembered. And also, she had never heard Nicky Viner do anything else but grumble and complain. But she could not see fully into the other room, only into a corner of it, for the two doors were located diagonally across from one another, and her hand, in a startled way, went suddenly to her lips, as though mechanically to help choke back and stifle the almost overpowering impulse to cry out that rose within her. Nicky Viner was not alone in there. A figure had come into her line of vision in that other room, not Nicky Viner, not any of the gang, and she stared now in incredulous amazement, scarcely able to believe her eyes, and then, suddenly, cool and self-possessed again, 
relieved in a curious way because the element of personal danger was a consequence eliminated, she began to understand why she had been forestalled in her efforts at Perlmer's office, when she had been so sure that she would be the first upon the scene. It was not Dangler, or the Cricket, or Skeeny, or any of the band who had forestalled her. It was the adventurer. That was the adventurer standing in there now, side face to her, in Nicky Viner's inner room. Chapter 10 On the Brink Rhoda Gray moved quietly, inch by inch, along the side of the wall to gain a vantage point more nearly opposite the lighted doorway, and then she stopped again. She could see quite clearly now, that is, there was nothing now to obstruct her view, but the light was miserable and poor, and the single gas jet that wheeled and flickered did little more than disperse the shadows from its immediate neighborhood in that inner room. But she could see enough. She could see the bent and ill-clad figure of Nicky Viner, as she remembered him, an old, gray-bearded man, wringing his hands in groveling misery, while the mumbling voice, now whining and pleading, now servile, now plucking up courage to indulge in abuse, kept on without even, it seemed, a pause for breath. She could see the adventurer, quite unmoved, quite debonair, a curiously patient smile on his face, standing there, much nearer to her, his right hand in the pocket of his coat, a somewhat significant habit of his, his left hand holding a sheaf of folded, legal-looking documents. And then she heard the adventurer speak. "'What a flow of words!' said the adventurer, in a bored voice. "'You will forgive me, my dear Mr. Viner, if I appear to be facetious, which I am not, but money talks. "'You are a thief, a robber,' the old grey-bearded figure rocked on its feet and kept wringing its hands. "'Get out of here! Get out! Do you hear? Get out! "'You come to steal from a poor man, and—' "'Must we go over all that again?' interrupted the adventurer wearily. "'I have not come to steal anything.' I have simply come to sell you these papers, which I am quite sure, once you control yourself, and give the matter a little calm consideration, you are really most anxious to buy, at any price. It's a lie, the other croaked hoarsely. The papers are a lie. I am innocent. I haven't got any money. None. I haven't any. I am poor, an old man, and poor. Rhoda Gray felt the blood flush hotly in her cheeks. Somehow she could feel no sympathy for that cringing figure in there, but she felt a hot resentment toward that dapper, immaculately dressed, and self-possessed young man, who stood there, silently now, tapping the papers with provoking coolness against the edge of the plain deal table in front of him. And somehow the resentment seemed to take on a most peculiar phase. She resented the fact that she should feel resentment, no matter what the man did or said. It was as though, instead of anger, impersonal anger, at this low, miserable act of his, she felt ashamed of him. Her hand clenched fiercely as she crouched against the wall. It wasn't true. She felt nothing of the sort. Why should she be ashamed of him? What was he to her? He was frankly a thief, wasn't he? And he was at his pitiful calling now, down to the lowest dregs of it. What else did she expect? because he had the appearance of a gentleman, was it that her sense of gratitude for what she owed him had made her, deep down in her soul, actually cherish the belief that he really was one, made her hope it, and nourished that hope into belief? Tighter her hand clenched. Her lips parted, and her breath came in short, hard inhalations. Was it true? Was it all only an added misery, where it had seemed there could be none to add to her life in these last few days? Was it true that there was no price she would not have paid to have found him in any role but this abased one that he was playing now? The adventurer broke the silence. Quite so, my dear Mr. Viner, he agreed smoothly. It would appear, then, from what you say, that I have been mistaken. Even stupidly so, I am afraid. And in that case, I can only apologize for my intrusion, and as you so delicately put it, get out. He slipped the papers, with a philosophic shrug of his shoulders, into his inside coat pocket, and then took a backward step toward the door. "'I bid you good-night, then, Mr. Viner. 
The papers, as you state, are doubtlessly of no value to you, so you can, of course, have no objection to my handing them over to the police, who— No, no, wait, wait, the other whispered wildly, wait. Ah, murmured the adventurer. I, I'll— The bent old figure was clawing at his beard. I'll— Buy them? suggested the adventurer pleasantly. Yes, I'll— I'll buy them. I— I've got a little money, only a little, all I've been able to save in years, uh, a hundred dollars. How much did you say? inquired the adventurer coldly. Two hundred, the voice was a maudlin whine. The adventurer took another step backward toward the door. Three hundred, another step. Five, a thousand. The adventurer laughed suddenly. That's better, he said. Where you keep a thousand, you keep the rest. Where is the thousand, Mr. Viner? The bent figure hesitated a moment, and then, with what sounded like a despairing cry, pointed to the table. It's there, he whimpered. God's curse is on you, for the thief you are. Rhoda Gray found her eyes fixed in sudden, strained fascination on the table, as she imagined the adventurers were too. It was bare of any covering, nor were there any articles on its surface, nor, as far as she could see, was there any drawer. Now the adventurer, his right hand still in his coat-pocket, and bulging there where she knew quite well it grasped his revolver, stepped abruptly to the table, facing the other with the table between them. The bent old figure hesitated, and then, with a despairing cry again, grasped the top of the table, and jerked it toward him. The surface seemed to slide sideways a little, a matter of two or three inches, and then stick there, but the adventurer, in an instant, had thrust the fingers of his left hand into the crevice. He drew out a number of loose banknotes, and thrust his fingers in again for a further supply. "'Open it wider,' he commanded curtly. "'I—I'm trying to,' the other mumbled, and bent down to peer under the table. "'It's stuck. The catch is underneath, and—' It seemed to Rhoda Gray, gazing into the dimly lighted room, as though she were suddenly held spellbound, as in some horrible and amazing trance. Like a hideous jack-in-the-box, the gray head popped above the level of the table again, and as quick as a flash, a revolver was thrust into the adventurer's face. And the adventurer, caught at a disadvantage, since his hand in his coat-pocket was below the intervening table-top, stood there as though instantaneously transformed into some motionless, inanimate thing, his fingers still gripping at another sheaf of banknotes that he had been in the act of scooping out from the narrow aperture. And then again Rhoda Gray stared, and stared now as though bereft of her senses, and upon her crept, cold and deadly, a fear and a terror that seemed to engulf her very soul itself. The head that looked like a jack-in-the-box was gone, the gray beard seemed to suddenly be shorn away, and the gray hair too, and to fall and flutter to the table, and the bent shoulders were not bent any more, and it wasn't Nicky Viner at all. Only a clever, a wonderfully clever impersonation that had been helped out by the poor and meager light. A terror gripped her again, for it wasn't Nicky Viner. Those narrowed eyes, that leering, gloating face, those working lips, were danglers. And as from some far distance, dulled because her consciousness was dulled, she heard Dangler speak. "'Perhaps you'll take your hand out of that right coat-pocket of yours now,' sneered Dangler, "'and take it out empty.' The adventurer's face, as nearly as Rhoda could see, had not moved a muscle. He obeyed now, coolly with a shrug of his shoulders. Dangler appeared to experience no further trouble with the surface of the table now. He suddenly jerked it almost off, displaying what Rhoda Gray now knew to be the remainder of a large package of banknotes he had taken from the garret earlier that evening. "'Help yourself to the rest,' he invited caustically. There isn't fifty thousand there, but you're quite welcome to all there is, in return for those papers. The adventurer was apparently obsessed with an inspection of his fingernails. He began to polish those of one hand with the palm of the other. Quite so, Dangler, he said coolly. I admit it, I am ashamed of myself. I hate to think I could be caught by you, but I suppose I can find some self-extenuating circumstances. You seem to have risen to an amazingly high order of intelligence. In fact, for you, Dangler, it's not bad at all. He went on polishing his nails. Would you mind taking that out of my face? Even you ought to be able to handle it effectively a few inches further away. 
under the studied insult, Dangler's face had grown a mottled red. "'Damn you!' he snarled. "'I'll take it away when I get good and ready, and by that time I have you talking out of the other side of your mouth. See? Do you know what you're up against, you slick dude?' "'I have a fairly good imagination,' replied the adventurer smoothly. "'You have, eh?' mimicked Dangler wickedly. "'Well, you don't need to imagine anything.' I'll give you the straight goods, so's there won't be any chance of a mistake. And never mind about the higher order of intelligence. It was high enough, and a little to spare, to make you walk into the trap. I hoped I'd get you both, you and that she-pal the white mall, that you'd come here together. But I'm not kicking. It's a pretty good start to get you. Is it necessary to make a speech? complained the adventurer monotonously. I can't help listening, of course. "'You can make up your mind for yourself when I'm through, whether it's necessary or not,' retorted Dangler viciously. "'I've got a little proposition to put to you, and maybe it'll help you to add two and two together, if I let you see all the cards. Understand?' "'You've had your run of luck lately, quite a bit of it, haven't you? You and the White Mall? Well, it's my turn now. You've been queering our game to the limit, curse you.' Dangler thrust his working face a little further over the table, and nearer to the adventurer. Well, what was the answer? Where did you get the dope you've made your plays with? It was a cinch, wasn't it, that there was a leak somewhere in our crowd? He laughed out suddenly. You poor fool! Did you think you could pull that sort of stuff forever? Did you? Well, then, how do you like the leak tonight? You get the idea, don't you? Everybody... Every last soul that is in this with us got the details of what they thought was a straight play tonight, and it leaked to you, as I knew it would, and you walked into the trap, as I knew you would, because the bait was good and juicy, and looked the easiest thing to annex that ever happened. Fifty thousand dollars. Fifty thousand nothing. All you had to do was get a few papers that it wouldn't bother any crook to get, even a near crook like you, and then come here and screw the money out of a helpless old man who was supposed to have been discovered to be a miser. Easy, wasn't it? Only old Nicky Viner wasn't a miser. We chose Nicky because of what happened two years ago. It made things look pretty near right, didn't it? Looked straight, that part about Perlmer, too, didn't it? That was the come-on. Perlmer never saw those papers you've got in your pocket. I doped them out, and we planted them nice and handy where you could get them without much trouble in the drawer of Perlman's desk, and— It's a long story, interrupted the adventurer, with quiet insolence. It's got a short ending, said Dangler, with an ugly leer. We could have bumped you off when you went for those papers, but if you went that far, you'd come further, and that wasn't the place to do it, and we couldn't cover ourselves there the way we could here— this is the place. We brought that trick table here a while ago, as soon as we got rid of Nicky Viner. That was the only bit of stage setting we had to do to make the story ring true right up to the curtain, in case it was necessary. It wouldn't have been necessary if you and the White Mall had both come together, for then you would neither of you got any further than that other room. It would have ended there. But we weren't taking any chances." I'll pay you the compliment of admitting that we weren't counting on getting you off your guard any too easily, if, as it happened, you came alone. For being alone, or if either of you were alone, there was that little proposition that had to be settled, instead of just knocking you on the head in the dark in that other room. And so, as I say, we weren't overlooking any bets on account of the little trouble it took to plant that table and the money. We tried to think of everything." Dangler paused for a moment to mock the adventurer with narrowed eyes. "'That's the story. Here's the end. I hoped I'd get you both together, you and the White Mall. I didn't. But I've got you. I didn't get both of you, and that's what gives you a chance for your life, because she's worth more to us than you are. If you'd been together, you would have gone out together. As it is, I'll see that you don't do any more harm anyway. But you get one chance.' Where is she? If you answer that, you will, of course, answer a minor question and locate that leak for me that I was speaking about a moment ago. But we'll take the main thing first. And you can take your choice between a bullet and a straight answer. Where is the white mall? Rhoda Gray's hand felt out along the wall for support. 
Was this a dream, some ghastly, soul-terrifying nightmare? Dangler? Those working lips? That callous viciousness? That leer in the degenerate face? It seemed to bring a weakness to her limbs, and seek to rob her of her strength to stand. She could not even hope against hope. She knew that Dangler was in deadly earnest. Dangler would not have the slightest compunction, let alone hesitation, in carrying out his threat. Terrified now, her eyes sought the adventurer. Didn't the adventurer know Dangler as she knew him? Didn't he realize there was deadly earnest behind Dangler's words? Was the man mad, that he stood there utterly unmoved, as though he had no consideration on earth other than those carefully manicured fingernails of his? And then Dangler spoke again. "'Do you notice anything special about this gun I'm holding on you?' he demanded in low menace. The adventurer did not even look up. "'Oh, yes,' he said indifferently. "'I fancy you got it out of a dime novel, didn't you? One of those silencer things?' "'Yes,' said Dangler grimly. "'One of those silencer things. "'Where is she?' "'The adventurer made no answer. "'The color in Dangler's face deepened. "'I'll make things even a little plainer to you,' "'he said with brutal coolness. "'There are two men in our organization "'from whom it is absolutely impossible "'that that leak could have come. "'Those two men followed you "'from Perlmer's office to this place. "'They are in the next room now "'waiting for me to get through with you "'and ready for anything if they are needed.' but they won't be needed. That's not the way it works out. This gun won't make much noise, and it isn't likely to arouse the inmates of this dive, but even if it does, it doesn't matter very much. We aren't going out by the front door. The two of them, the minute they hear the shot, slip in here and lock the door. You see, it's got a good husky bolt on it, and then we beat it by the fire escape that runs past the window there. Get the idea? "'And don't kid yourself into thinking that I am taking any risk with the consequences "'on account of the coroner having got busy because a man was found dead on the floor. "'Nicky Viner stands for that. "'It isn't the first time he's been suspected of murder. "'See? Nicky was easy. "'He'd crawl on his hands and knees from the battery to Harlem "'any time if I held a little money in front of his nose. "'He's been fooled up to the eyes with a faked-up message "'that he's supposed to deliver secretly to some faked-up crooks out west. "'He's just about starting away on the train now. "'And that's where the police nab him, "'running away from the murder he's pulled in his room here tonight. "'Looks kind of bad for Nicky Viner, eh? "'We should worry. "'It cost a hundred dollars and his ticket. "'Cheap, wasn't it? "'I guess you're worth that much to us.' "'A dull whore seized upon Rhoda Gray.' It seemed to clog and confuse her mind. She fought it frantically, striving to think, and to think clearly. Every detail seemed to have been planned with satanic foresight and ingenuity, and yet, and yet, yes, in one little thing, Dangler had made a mistake. That was why she was here now. That was why those men in the next room had not been out in the hall on guard, or even in the street on watch for her. Dangler had naturally gone upon the supposition that the adventurer and herself worked hand in glove, whereas they were as much in the dark concerning each other's movements as Dangler himself was. Therefore Dangler, and logically enough from his view, had jumped to the conclusion that, since they had not come together, only one of them, the adventurer, was acting in the affair tonight, and Dangler's voice was rasping in her ears. "'I'm not going to stand here all night,' he snarled. "'You've got one chance.' I've told you what it is. You're lucky to have it. We'd sooner have you out of the way for keeps. I'd rather drop you in your tracks than let you live. Where is the white mall? The adventurer was side-faced to the doorway again, and Rhoda Gray saw him smile contemptuously at Dangler now. Really, he said blandly, I haven't the slightest idea in the world. Dangler laughed ironically. You lie, he flung out hoarsely. Do you think you can get away with that? Well, think again. Sooner or later, it will be all the same whether you talk or not. We caught you tonight in a trap. We'll catch her in another. Our hand doesn't show here. She'll think that Nicky Viner was a little too much for you, that's all. Come on, quick. Are you fool enough to misunderstand? The don't-know stuff won't get you by. The misunderstanding seems to be on your side. There was a cold, irritating deliberation in the adventurer's voice. I repeat that I do not know where the young lady you refer to can be found. 
but I do not make that statement with any idea that you would believe it. To occur, I suppose that it is necessary to add that, even if I did know, I should take pleasure in seeing you damned before I told you. Dangler's face was like a devil's. His revolver held a steady bead on the adventurer's head. "'I'll give you one last chance,' he said through closed teeth. "'I'll fire when I count three. One. A horrible fascination held Rhoda Gray. If she cried out, it was more likely than not to cause Dangler to fire on the instant. It would not save the adventurer in any case. It would be but the signal, too, for those two men in the next room to rush in here. Two. It seemed as though, not in the hope that it would do any good, but because she was going mad with horror, that she would scream out until the place rang and rang again with her outcries. Even her soul was in frantic panic. Quick! Quick! She must act! She must! But how? Was there only one way? She was conscious that she had drawn her revolver as though by instinct. Dangler's life, or the adventurer's. But she shrank from taking life. Her lips were breathing a prayer. They had called her a crack shot back there in South America, when she had hunted and ridden with her father. It was easy enough to hit Dangler, but it might mean Dangler's life. It was not easy to hit Dangler's arm, or Dangler's hand, or the revolver Dangler held, and if she risked that, and missed, she— Three— There was the roar of a report that was racketing through the silence like a cannon shot, and the short, vicious-tongued flame from Rhoda Gray's revolver muzzle stabbed through the black. There was a scream of mingled surprise and fury, and the revolver in Dangler's hand clattered to the floor. She saw the adventurer spring, quick as a panther, at the other, and she saw him whip blow after blow with terrific force into Dangler's face. She heard a rush of feet coming from the corridor behind her, and she flung herself forward into the room, and panting, snatched at the door and slammed it shut, and groping for the bolt, found it, and shot it home in its grooves. As she stood there, weak for a moment, and drew her hands across her eyes, and behind her they pounded on the door, and there came a burst of oaths, and in front of her the adventurer was smiling gravely, as he covered Dangler with Dangler's own revolver, and Dangler, as though dazed and half-stunned from the blows that he had received, rocked unsteadily upon his feet. And then her eyes widened a little. The pounding on the door, the shouts, the noise— was beginning to arouse what inmates there were in the tenement, and there wasn't an instant to lose. But the adventurer was now calmly gathering up, to the last one, and pocketing them, the banknotes with which Dangler had baited his trap. And he crammed the money into his pockets as he spoke to her, with a curious softness, a great, strange gentleness in his voice. "'I owe you my life, Miss Gray. That was a wonderful shot. You knocked the revolver from his hand without even grazing his fingers.' A wonderful shot, and, will you let me say, you are a very wonderful woman. Oh, quick, she whispered wildly, I am afraid this door will not hold. There is the window and the fire escape, so our friend here was good enough to inform me, said the adventurer, as he composedly pocketed the last dollar. Will you open the window, Miss Gray, if you please? I am afraid I hit Mr. Dangler a little urgently, and he is still somewhat groggy. I fancy he will need a little assistance. I imagine, he caught Dangler suddenly by the collar of his coat, as Rhoda Gray ran to the window and flung it up, and rushed the man unceremoniously across the room. I imagine it would be a mistake to leave him behind. He might open the door, or even be unpleasant enough to throw something down on us from above. Also, he should serve very well as a hostage. Will you go first, please, Miss Gray? She climbed quickly over the sill to the iron platform. Dangler was dragged through by the adventurer, mumbling, and evidently still in a half-dazed condition. Windows were opening here and there. From back inside the room the blows rained more heavily upon the door, and now there came a rip and a rend of wood, as though a panel had crashed in. "'Hurry, please, Miss Gray,' prompted the adventurer. It was dark, almost too dark to see her footing. She felt her way down. It was only one story above the ground, and it did not take long, but it seemed hours since she had fired that shot, though she knew the time had been measured by scarcely more than a minute. And now, on the lower platform, waiting for that queer, double-twisting shadow of the two men to join her, she heard the adventurer's voice ring out sharply. "'This is your chance, Dangler. 
I didn't waste time to bring you along because it afforded me any amusement. They've found their heads at last, and gone to the next window, instead of wasting time at the door. They can't reach the fire escape there, but if they fire a shot, you go out. You'd better tell them so, and tell them quick. And then Dangler's voice shrieked out in sudden, For God's sake, don't shoot! They were all on the lower platform together now. The adventurer was pressing the muzzle of his revolver into the small of Dangler's back, and was still supporting the man by the collar of his coat. I think, said the adventurer abruptly, that we can now dispense with Mr. Dangler's services, and I'm sure a little cool night air out here on the fire escape will do him good. Miss Gray, would you mind? There's a pair of handcuffs in my left-hand coat pocket. Handcuffs! She could have laughed out idiotically. Handcuffs! They seemed the most incongruous things in the world for the adventurer to have, and she felt mechanically in his pocket and handed them to him. There was a click as the cuff snapped over Dangler's wrist, another as the other cuff snapped shut around the ironed hand-railing of the fire-escape. The act seemed to arouse Dangler, both mentally and physically. He tore and wrenched at the steel links now, and burst suddenly raving into oaths. "'Hold your tongue, Dangler,' ordered the adventurer in cold menace, and as the other, cowed, obeyed, the adventurer swung himself over the platform and dropped to the ground. "'Come, Miss Gray, drop.' "'I'll catch you,' he called in a low voice. "'One step takes us around the corner of the tenement into the lane, "'and Mr. Dangler won't let them fire at us before we can make that, "'when we could still fire at him.' "'She obeyed, swinging at arm's length. "'She felt his hands fold about her in a firm grasp "'as she let go of her hold, and she caught her breath suddenly. "'She did not know why, as she felt the hot blood sweep her face, "'and then she was standing on the ground.' Now, he whispered, together. They sped around the corner of the tenement. A yell from Dangler followed them. An echoing yell from above answered, and then a fusillade of abortive shots, and the sound as of boot-heels clattering on the iron rungs of the fire-escape. And then, more faintly, for they were putting distance behind them as fast as they could run, an excited outburst of profanity and exclamations. "'They won't follow,' panted the adventurer." Those shots of theirs outdoors will have alarmed the police, and they'll try and get Dangler free first. It's lucky your shot inside wasn't heard by that patrolman on the beat. I was afraid of that. But we're safe now, from Dangler's crowd at least. But still they ran. They crossed an intersecting street, and continued on along the lane. Then, swerving into the next intersecting street, moderated their pace to a rapid walk and stopped finally as Rhoda Gray drew suddenly into the shadows of another alleyway, and held out her hand. They were both safe now, as he had said, and there were so many reasons why, though her resolution faltered a little, she should go the rest of the way alone. She was not sure that she trusted this strange gentleman, who was a thief, with his pockets crammed even now with the money that had lured him almost to his death, but she was not altogether sure that she distrusted him but all that was secondary. She must, as soon as she could, get back to Gypsy Nan's garret. Like the other night, she dare not take the risk that Dangler, by any chance, might return there, and find her gone after what had just happened. The man would be beside himself with fury, suspicious of everything, and suspicion would be fatal in its consequences for her. And so she must go, and she could not become Gypsy Nan again with the adventurer looking on. "'We part here,' she said, a little unsteadily. "'Good night.' "'Oh, I say, Miss Gray,' he protested quickly. "'You don't mean that. "'Why, look here. "'I haven't had a chance to tell you what I think, "'or what I feel, about what you've done tonight, for me.' "'She shook her head. "'There is nothing you need say,' she answered quietly. "'We are quits. "'You have done quite as much for me.' "'But see here, Miss Gray,' he pleaded. "'Can't we come to some understanding?' We seem to have a jolly lot in common. Is it quite necessary, really necessary, that you should keep off at an arm's length? Couldn't you let down the bars just a little? Couldn't you tell me, for instance, where I could find you in case of real necessity? She shook her head again. No, she said, it is impossible. He drew a little closer. A sudden earnestness deepened his voice, made it a little rasp, as though it were not wholly within control. "'And suppose, Miss Gray, that I refuse to leave you, or let you go, now that I have you here, unless you give me more of your confidence. What then? 
"'The other night,' she said slowly, "'you informed me, among other things, that you were a gentleman. "'I believed the other things.' "'He did not answer for a moment, and then he smiled whimsically. "'You score, Miss Gray,' he murmured. "'Good night, then,' she said again. "'I will go by the alley here, you by the street.' "'No, wait,' he said gravely. "'If nothing will change your mind, and I shall not be importunate, "'for we have met three times now,' Through the same peculiar chain of circumstances, I know we shall meet again. I have something to tell you before you go. As you already know, I went to Gypsy Nan's the night after I first saw you, because I felt you needed help. I went there in the hope that she would know where to find you, and failing that, I left a message for you in the hope that, since she had tricked Rourke in your behalf, you would find means of communicating with her again. But all that is entirely changed now. Your participation in that Hayden Bond affair the other night makes Gypsy Nan's place the last in all New York to which you should go. Rhoda Gray stared through the semi-darkness, suddenly startled, searching the adventurer's face. What do you mean? she demanded quickly. Just this, he answered, that where before I hoped you would go there, I have spent nearly all the time since in haunting the vicinity of Gypsy Nan's house to warn you away in case you should try to reach her. I, I don't understand, she said, a little uncertainly. It's simple enough, he said. Gypsy Nan is now one of those you have most to fear. Gypsy Nan is merely a disguise. She is no more Gypsy Nan than you are. Rhoda Gray caught her breath. Not Gypsy Nan, she repeated, and fought to keep her voice in control. Who is she, then? The adventurer laughed shortly. "'She is quite closely connected to that gentleman we left airing himself on the fire-escape,' he said grimly. "'Gypsy Nan is Dangler's wife.' It was very strange, very curious. The alleyway seemed suddenly to be revolving around and around, and it seemed to bring her a giddiness and a faintness. The adventurer was standing there before her, but she did not see him any more. She could only see, as from a brink upon which she tottered, a gulf, abysmal in its horror, that yawned before her. Thank you. Thank you for the warning. Was that her voice speaking so calmly and dispassionately? I will remember it. And I must go now. Good night again. He said something. She did not know what. She only knew that she was hurrying along the alleyway now, and that he had made no effort to stop her, and that she was grateful to him for that, and that her composure, strained to the breaking point, would have given away if she had remained with him another instant. Dangler's wife? It was dark in the alleyway, and she did not know where it led. But did it matter? And she stumbled as she went along. But it was not the physical inability to see that made her stumble. It was a brain blindness that fogged her soul itself. His wife? Gypsy Nan was Dangler's wife? Gypsy Nan is Dangler's wife. Well, no wonder he was getting so familiar with her. <laughs> and no wonder it was so alarming. <laughs> now what's she going to do? She's got nowhere to hide out. If she goes back there, now she knows what Dangler means with his sweet talk. Ugh. <laughs> Especially after we had the adventurer going, oh, you wonderful woman, you're a crack shot. Huh. And her thinking about the adventurer on the way there and just thinking about him and blushing because, well, you know, he seems like a great guy if we could just ignore the fact that he's a thief. I do love those entanglements. I was also really surprised when I heard them say, well, it's been three days. And I was like, oh my gosh, so much is packed into this book. All this has happened in three days? That's nuts. And I really liked the fact that she did have just a brief flash when she was regretting the life she was having to live. And she said, well, but it allowed me to save the Sparrow's life. If I can help Nikki Viner, this is before she knows that he's not really there, then maybe her life was changed for that reason. And I kind of like that little bit of higher thought thrown into it because she's having to puzzle through also, why am I stuck going through this? Oh my gosh, I hope it's for something more 
Not that she's thinking about that a lot. It seems like she's mostly scraping and trying to get by. I also liked when they give the descriptions of the tenement buildings and how completely black they are. And you think about people really had to live in buildings like that. And it makes me think of the Bowery Boys, which is that New York City history podcast. They're well into the hundreds now in their episodes. But early on, they had a series of them on, I don't think they called them the tenements of New York, but they talked about some of those bad neighborhoods in that time period. And they also talked about some of the criminal gangs that were around then. And this book really evoked those podcasts for me. So if you're interested in that, I will put a link to the Bowery Boys and definitely go take a look around in their archives because that's got the real feel that this is echoing. It's kind of interesting that the gang is not just waiting around to see what's going to happen next. They're being proactive, trying to trap the adventurer and the white mall, which I, for one, did not expect. I don't know about you. I didn't give them credit for having that many brains. So I liked that part too, and how they got out of it. And I think that's about all we can say about this. You know, this is more of an adventure book than a thinking book. I don't really have, as usual, much else going on. It's super hot. And that means it's Texas in August. So that's about normal. I've actually been listening to not that many podcasts and mostly audiobooks, which I guess is going to monopolize you if you insist on reading Dickens the way I have been. I just finished Barnaby Rudge, which was kind of an interesting book. For one thing, most people haven't heard of it. It's one of his earlier books, and it is Dickens' first historical novel. So he wrote A Tale of Two Cities late in his career, but this was written about the anti-Catholic riots of the 1770s in London, and I didn't know that there were these riots that went on for days and days, well, at night. But so many people were involved that the military couldn't really be effective against them, and they were burning down parts of London. It almost sounded a lot like the French Revolution, except that they didn't really have a very good reason to do it. And Dickens kind of talks about all that. And from what I could tell in the introduction to the book, he was not really exaggerating which is kind of sad because some of the stuff in there is terrible. But I found it interesting that he was factual enough that even at this late date, we can say, no, nope, he was just telling it like it is. You can really see why Dickens hated revolutions, at least of the sort of the mob rules. You know, they're just horrible. And in both Barnaby Rudge and A Tale of Two Cities, you see plenty of victims, so it's made really clear. But at the same time in Barnaby Rudge, what's interesting is there's this whole gothic story that's woven in and out about a ghost and a murder and the people who are left behind as, you know, the relatives and the people who were affected by it and the mystery has not been solved. And there's this, like I say, gothic element that I really found attractive whenever that came up. There's something in me that just loves that, I guess. But it was a really interesting book. It wasn't his best book, but it was far from being what I would call his worst book, which I haven't read all of them, so I'm not sure what his worst book really is. I'm not crazy about Oliver Twist, though I need to reread it. It's been years. And I'm not crazy about Nicholas Nickleby. And I haven't read The Old Curiosity Shop, but I feel like I'm not going to be crazy about it either. I might be once I start reading it. We'll see. Anyway, so that's your Dickens report for the month. <laughs> I'm now going for some lighter reading, believe me. We're about halfway through The White Mall, and I've read a few short stories getting ready for After This Is Done. And I think I have found the book I'm going to read next. So I'm going to start recording those pieces. It's a mystery. And I think you'll be surprised because it's truly a forgotten classic. At least as far as I know. That's all I'm going to say. If you have any comments, any forgotten classics you'd like to hear, do let me know. 
You can reach me at julie at glyphnet.com, J-U-L-I-E at G-L-Y-P-H-N-E-T dot com, or leave a comment at the blog for the podcast, which is hcforgottenclassics.blogspot.com, or just go ahead and, you know, leave me an iTunes review. That's just for fun and just for me. That's not, well, I mean, you can leave suggestions, of course, there, but... You know, that's just for the fun of the review. (laughs) And as always, thank you so much for coming by and listening. I would not be listening to this again or having the fun of thinking about what to read next if it wasn't for you. I appreciate it very much. Have a great week, everyone, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.